You know, when I was still a pastor, periodically my wife would ask me, have you finished for the day? And my answer was always, always no. There was always another email to respond to, another phone call I could make, another book that I could read, another I, I could take off from my to-do list. I woke up every morning to the relentless pressure of the to-do list. It was snapping at my heels. Now that I'm retired, the relentlessness is gone, but the items on my reminder app still seem to continue to get overdue and get longer at the same time. Your situation is probably not all that different. One might think that in these COVID-inspired shutdown days, we have lots more time, and some people do. But many of you, for example, who have school-age children at home all of a sudden, are probably busier than you were before. And while working from home has saved some people huge blocks of time, I've heard from other people working from home that they are busier and the expectations from their bosses are even higher. Now, once all this stuff gets back to new normal, whatever that is, you're going to go back, many of you, into that relentless world of work where bottom-line-driven bosses are going to expect more and more in less and less time for you and have you available all the time. One man called this the tyranny of the urgent. Now, what suffers is relationships. We find ourselves getting angry at people who delay us at the checkout counter at the grocery store. We get irritated when bank lines don't move as fast as we can. Cashiers at checkout counters, I'm told in some cases, are automatically have their number of keystrokes a minute recorded, which means that discourages any kind of conversation at all. And relationship intimacy building type of relationships take a backseat completely if they happen at all. Why? Because someone is whispering in your ear, relationships take time and you don't have time, there's things to do. Now what is true in the horizontal level is also true in the vertical level. The Evangelical Alliance Church in America did a survey and they asked this question, which Bible character do you identify with the most? The surprising answer was Martha, busy Martha. Now, for some of you who may not be familiar with that story, Luke, one of the biographers of Jesus, tells it. Here's what it looks, sounds like. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was worrying over the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my... Sister just sits here while I do all the work. Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are so upset over all these details. There's really only one thing being worth concerned about. Mary has discovered it and I won't take it away from her. Sir, so the survey said that she was selected almost three times more than her contemplative sister Mary, indicating that busy lifestyles are a widespread feature of contemporary discipleship. Which brings us to this final message of this three-part series on prayer. The approach that we've been taking in, in all of this is that we will pray more when prayer ceases to be just something that we believe in and it becomes increasingly a value because of some convictions that are driven deeper and deeper into our lives. Two weeks ago, we learned the first conviction that life is war. This rescues us from that peacetime mentality that leads to a life that is disengaged in any way from the mission or the cause of Christ. Last week, we looked at the conviction that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. This delivers us from that bondage of self-sufficiency, the flesh as we called it. Today we want to talk about this third conviction that the eternal God is Lord of time who touches and transforms us in time. The eternal God is Lord of time who touches and transforms us in time, thus dealing with the tyranny of the urgent. The anchor text for us 
is found in Psalm 90. The Psalms, if you remember, are part of Israel's worship manual. Let me read a few verses. Lord, through all generations, you've been our home. Before the mountains were created, before you made the earth and the world, you are God, without beginning or end. For you a thousand years are as yesterday. They are like a few hours. Seventy years are given to us. Some may even reach eighty. But even the best of these years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear and we are gone. Teach us to make the most of our time so that we may grow in wisdom. The contrast here is between the brevity of our lives and God's eternality. And this particular attribute of God, his eternality, means that God is outside of time. In fact, time itself was part of creation. Matter, space, and time were all part of creation. Genesis 1 begins that way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Of course, we didn't understand that until Einstein produced the mathematical basis for it in his theory of relativity. Now, because God is outside of time, something follows inescapably. That hurry and time pressures are logical impossibilities with God. Therefore, therefore, when grappling with the tyranny of the urgent, we have two fundamentally different approaches. We can take matters into our own hand and work with frenzied activity to accomplish what we need to get done. Or we can periodically learn to down tools and let the eternal God touch our time with eternity and thus help us to conquer the tyranny of time. Let's go back to that Mary and Martha story. As you read the story, some of you are probably saying, well, that's kind of very unfair of you, Jesus. After all, you were invited into their home, which means a meal was taken for granted in those cultures, which means somebody had to cook the meal. And here was Mary having dumped all the work on Martha, and Jesus seemed to be commending her for that. No, actually he was not contrasting work with time kind of spent sitting at his feet. Peter Scazzaro, a man who has written a lot of books on this dimension of our lives, on emotionally healthy spirituality, had one of the most penetrating observations on this that I've read, which really helped me. He said, Martha's problems, however, go beyond her busyness. I suspect that if Martha were to sit at the feet of Jesus, she would still be distracted with everything on her mind. Her inner person is touchy, irritable, and anxious. On the other hand, I suspect that if Mary would help with household chores, she would not be worried or upset. Why? Her inner person has slowed down enough to focus on Jesus and to center her life on him. Our goal is to love God with our whole being, to be consistently conscious of God through our daily life. Whether we are stopped like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, or actively taking care of the tasks of life. You see, when we down tools to connect with God, the to-do list doesn't get magically short, and we actually have less quantity of time than we had before. Whatever time we spent in God's presence, we lost. But here's the difference. We change, and the change within us spills over into other people's lives. I want to take the rest of the message to illustrate three particular ways in which this has been part of my experience. Not perfectly, but it has continued to increase and even deepen my conviction that prayer will become a value and therefore become actualized in our lives as we really, really get gripped by this conviction that we need the eternal God to touch and transform us in time. Well, the first thing that happens that I found is that when eternity touches time, he, he spreads a banquet for our souls. Gordon MacDonald in his book, uh, Restoring Your Spiritual Passion, tells a story that I've never forgotten from the time I heard it. He talked about a Westerner who went over to Africa for a safari, and he had hired people around him to help him carry all his equipment. And he went to bed the first night absolutely delighted at the amount of 
progress they had made. And he woke up early the next morning, anticipating another day of just moving ahead at the same pace. When to his utter consternation, he found all of the people who were local people sitting down, refusing to move. When through an interpreter, he tried to find out what was going on, they said to him, we went so fast yesterday that we are waiting today for our souls to catch up with our bodies. We are waiting for our souls to catch up with our bodies. When eternity touches time, God does something in our souls, so that does not happen. And one of the primary passages of scripture that has spoken to me and refreshed me for decades now is the 55th chapter of Isaiah. It actually begins with a man or a woman who has been reduced to helplessness, probably tyrannized by this urgency thing that we've been talking about. So it opens with an invitation. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And listen to this question. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Remember that. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Now, bread is what feeds us. Labor that satisfies is fruitful labor. So this verse 2 describes an individual who's found themselves in a point where even though they worked hard, they are satisfied neither at the level of their being and becoming nor at the level of their doing. The solution is found on either side of this dilemma in verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Four times we are told to come and four times we are told to listen. And the result of that is so that your soul will delight and your soul will live. It's all about that soul, that central inner part of ourselves. Come, listen. So it's not hard work that gets people into that condition of verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? But rather it is working without stopping to let eternity touch time and for God to fuel our souls. Now this passage ends with a beautiful picture, two, two beautiful pictures, in fact, of what happens when souls get fed in this way. Verse 12 says, You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. It's a picture not just of joy, but of contagious joy. You will go out with joy, and other people will start clapping their hands. Those natives who were working for this man didn't experience any joy at all. By day two, they discovered this was going to be a joyless existence. Same thing happens today. When we find ourselves working with or for people who are driven by this bottom line agenda, who are tyrannized by the urgent, then we don't experience any joy. And like those workers in Africa, we might have a temptation just to resign. But if resignation is not an option for a whole bunch of other reasons, we resign ourselves to the situation. We end up feeling used, end up feeling discarded, and worse, we become driven people ourselves because that's what we learned all around us. Joy is the furthest thing from people who are tyrannized by the urgent. But, but, if eternity can touch time, if we stop to let our souls be fed, so that our souls can live. Then not only do we have joy, he says others are going to become joyful as well. 
Then he goes on to say, not only is the joy contagious, the joy is also transformational. Verse 13 is another beautiful metaphor of transformation. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Now, thorn bushes and briars are pokey and scratchy. Whereas myrtles and pine trees are fragrant. So verse 13 is a beautiful picture of transformation where people whose souls are fed in this way by God, they change or are slowly transformed from people who in their character and behavior are pokey and scratchy and irritable to people whose lives are like a fragrance that touches other people and they want to be there with them. Not only that, this transformation is not a temporal one, a short-lived one, sustained by artificial motivations, it is actually progressive and permanent, irreversible, will not be destroyed for an everlasting sign. It is this incredible, stunning transformation of that individual in verse 2, having spent their money on what is not bread and their labor on what doesn't satisfy, who will come and listen so their souls may live and they end up in this way, people who are joyful with contagious transformational joy. This has freed me often in my life and hopefully it can free you from the tyranny of the urgent. Here's a second dimension of how this has happened in my life. When eternity touches time, he clarifies and affirms the central calling of my life. Now, how is this related to the tyranny of the urgent? Well, simply in this way. <laughs> when we know who we are, when our identities have been confirmed, then anxiety decreases very rapidly because we know who we are. And when we are called and know what we are called to do, we find it much easier to say no. But lacking this affirmation of identity and calling, you know what happens? Our identities get wrapped up with what we do. Therefore, anxiety begins to increase. We start saying yes to things we should be saying no to. And we have less time left to do the things that we are really supposed to be doing. You, I don't need to spell that any further. That's why this is so directly related to the tyranny of the urgent. Let me, let me give you an example of one of the most outstanding ways in which this happened to me. <coughs> I was in 2017... Um, traveling to, the, to Oxford, England, to speak for two days, doing two four-hour uh, lecture series on spiritual disciplines and preaching at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. I was on the plane, and I was getting really nervous and anxious because I was speaking to 25 or 30 of the cream of the crop, the creme de la creme, from all over the world, literally, men and women, people who are, were skilled in their fields. Some of them had PhDs in their fields that I knew couldn't even understand what they were about. And I was beginning to feel really insecure. What am I going to say to these people, Lord? <laughs> I don't have the degrees that they have. <clears throat> anyway, my reading for that day, and I do my Bible reading usually at night, one of the ways in which God feeds my soul, I happened to be reading the first chapter of John's gospel. John was one of the four biographers of Jesus. And he opens with the story of a man named John the Baptist. And if you don't know the story, John was a forerunner of Jesus. He was one of the prophets of God. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. And he was preparing the way for, he was telling the people to repent, which basically means change your mind. This long awaited Messiah you know, is, is coming. So there was a delegation of people, religious hierarchy, that was sent to him and said, John, who are you? Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody were to say who asked you who you are, you could probably say many things. Like I could say, I'm a husband, I'm a father, uh, at that time I was a pastor, I'm retired, I'm a photographer, I'm a Red Sox fan, sorry about that guys, I'm a Red Sox fan. Those are all the things that I would normally say I am. 
what I probably would not say, and I think most of you, I wouldn't begin by saying, I'm not an architect, I'm not an engineer, I'm not a Raptors fan, I'm not this, I'm not that. We wouldn't do that. In fact, it would completely frustrate the people who asked me the question, who are you? But that's exactly what happened to John. When they said to John, who are you? He said, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not this prophet. And, and in frustration, they exploded. They said, what do you have to say to yourself about yourself? His answer was absolutely surprising. And this is what I was reading in my frame of mind. He said, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, you know what voices crying in the wilderness are like? Have you ever been to anything that is desert-like or, or large open spaces? You can shout and your voice just gets swallowed up by the vastness. There's no echo, no reverberations, nothing. A voice in the wilderness seems completely helpless to do anything. How could this have been an encouragement to John? <coughs> because John was quoting from an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah, one of Israel's greatest prophets. And it was a quotation from there. But the context of that quotation was a man sent by God to preach to a people in exile who had lost all hope. And he said, you are like a voice crying in the wilderness. And then he follows that up with another metaphor. He says, you will be building a highway in this desert area. Your preaching into the wilderness is going to build a highway. And who's going to come along the highway? God himself is going to come. And the people will see the glory of God and they will be encouraged and strengthened. And you can point to God and say, behold, he comes. I thought, why? What an incredible image. Something so weak as the voice crying in the wilderness, building a highway along which the power of God will come and touch people's lives. My, I changed completely. All hesitation went. I could say to the people, I am not an Oxford graduate. I am not a PhD. Like, like John, I can say, I, I am not an expert in these fields, but I am a voice crying in the wilderness. And there are wildernesses in these people's lives that I may not even know anything about, but my teaching is going to build a highway and Jesus is going to travel along that highway. Do you, do, you see the, do you see the relevance of this? It completely changed my whole attitude and my outlook. Now, this doesn't mean there wasn't work to do. There was lots of work to do in those eight hours of teaching. <coughs> but the person doing it had been affirmed in their character, uh, in their calling and in their um, identity. And so all anxiety had gone. Now, your calling may be completely different. <coughs> but this kind of affirmation of who you are, who God has made you to be, and what he's called you to do is going to free you from this kind of tyranny. Because otherwise, I could have tried to be like them and do things that I was never, never called to do and would probably have really, really failed. Now, Isaiah 55 takes me to a third dimension as well. <coughs> my thoughts are completely different from yours, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The rain and the snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out. It always produces fruit. I will accomplish all I want it and it will prosper wherever I send it. I, I call this the grand exchange. What does he say? My thoughts and my ways are higher than your thoughts and your ways. And in the transformation of uh, sorry, in the exchange of my thoughts and my ways for his thoughts and his ways, again, the tyranny of the urgent begins to get tamed by God. I can give you a large picture illustration and what we might think of as a small picture illustration. First, the large picture one. <coughs> I, I remember I told you that I had this assignment uh, at that same uh, trip. 
where I experienced the affirmation of my identity and calling, I was doing a four-hour lecture on, series on preaching. Now, I had been preaching for 36 years, but I had never actually been asked to teach a four-hour course on preaching. However, because I had six months in which to get this ready, for the first four of those six months, I really wasn't studying. It wasn't even on the front uh, burner, as it were, of my prayer time. But as I would walk and pray or study about other matters that were on the forefront of my mind, thoughts would come or verses of scripture that I'd be reading. That say, oh, that would be a good thing to include in that talk. That would be a good thing to include in that talk. And I would fish out my iPhone, and I would just dictate into the memo app whatever touched my mind. And that's all I did. Now, when two months were left, I actually sat down with my big bank sheet of paper. But you know what? how many voice memos I had? I had 89 voice memos. As I slowly went through those 89 voice memos, out of that came not a four-hour course, not a six-hour course, because I taught a six-hour course subsequently, but I still had material unfinished, and I hadn't cracked a book for it. He was slowly exchanging his thoughts and his ways for my thoughts and my ways. It's probably the biggest, biggest illustration of that has happened in my life. And I can tell you many, many times when God has miraculously, it, it would seem like shortened the period of time required. Now, as I said, there was lots of time, in those, lots of work in those two months to organize, to collate, to prepare lecture notes, but nowhere near the amount of time I would have needed and probably been tyrannized by if I was starting with a complete blank slate. But 89 memos over four months had far more than I needed, wanted me to do. Now, you might say, well, just a minute, is this only for all these people who are doing all these big, big things like preaching and teaching overseas and here? No, no. Let me tell you how it can happen to a, a Mary Martha situation. Uh, in our pastoral life, especially in the earlier years, um, we used to have hospitality. every Probably two, three nights a month, uh, Friday nights usually, uh, Sham and I would invite about 8, 10, 12, up to 16 people from the church over to our home for dinner. Now, Sham loved to do this. Hospitality is the number one gift. But it still in involved a lot of work. And so Fridays was always a really, really busy day for her. And I would take some time off and get, get home earlier to help with the cleaning and stuff and clean up afterwards, of course. But she did most of the work. So Friday mornings, the to-do list grew and there was a relentless pressure. But one particular time on a Friday when we were going to be having people over, on the Thursday night, I had, I had been sharing some of these thoughts on the conquering of the tyranny of the urgent uh, with my small group, or a discipleship group, actually it was. And so the next morning when Sham got up and was pressured by all the things that had to do, she remembered what we had learned the previous night. So she said, no, I'm not rushing there. I'm going to take my normal, quiet, unhurried time with God. She did, and when I came home in the evening, she said, honey, you'll never know, remember, never believe what happened. While I was ironing the tablecloth, she said, a whole new way of preparing today's dish popped into my mind. And it cut short the time so much that I actually got everything finished 45 minutes earlier. It's not just for preachers. It's for people cooking a meal to have people over to their home. The tyranny of the urgent is tamed as we do these three things. So, like Mary, will you choose the better thing? Will you sit at his feet and let the eternal God spread a banquet for your souls, affirm the identity and calling, and exchange his thoughts and his ways for yours? Can I say that again? Sit at his feet often enough to let the eternal God a banquet for your souls, affirm the identity, your identity and calling, and exchange his thoughts and his ways for yours. Okay, 
as I wrap up this series, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to share this with you. I want to just very quickly give you something very specific to follow up on. Some of you are probably saying, okay, pastor, for these three weeks, yes, I am deepening my conviction that life is war. I am deepening my conviction that apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. I am deepening my conviction that the tyranny of time is in fact going to be solved by letting the eternal God touch me. But when I finally get down to pray, I always have trouble. I run out of words to say, and so I either get silent, and my mind wanders everywhere, or I start babbling and meaninglessly repeating stuff. How do I bring delight into the discipline of prayer? Now, that's, that's a big, big question, okay? And actually, if I had a fourth week, I'd be speaking to you about a fourth conviction. The fourth conviction being that God speaks to us, and we can speak back to him, and in that dialogue, we are transformed. But I will provide a link to one of the sermons, on, and you can just uh, listen to that sometime. But here's what I'd like you to do for this week. Set aside two blocks of time. <coughs> choose, choose whichever works for you in your shit. Set aside two blocks of time, and, and listen. Listen to today's message, and you might want to listen to the one where uh, I will provide you a link. And as you listen, stop whenever something lands with impact or power. You're impressed you say, aha, whatever, however, you're reacting, you're reacting. Stop, don't just make notes. Stop and respond accordingly. What would you say if Jesus was on the other side of the table, like I asked you last week, saying that to you, whatever it was? He is, and you can respond. Uh, you might want to praise him if it was something about his character that was revealed. You might want to confess if, if some shortcoming in your own life was brought to mind by something that you heard. Just confess and ask for forgiveness. You might be filled with thanksgiving as you begin to be struck by all that God has done for you. You might be, hopefully you're thrilled with thanksgiving that there's an eternal God who conquers the tyranny of the urgent. Maybe it's a petition. Maybe you say, ah, oh, I need to, oh, Jesus, I need this from you. By all means, ask for him. Or maybe you say, I know somebody else who needs it and you can pray for them. Any one of these responses will be appropriate. As you begin to do that just for this week, you begin to experience that delight coming into that discipline of prayer. Thank you so much again for this privilege of being able to be with you for these three weeks.